Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, 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 well. So David's watching basically um, where we left him. Anyways, he he's basically watching a civil war play out in words and in insults. And probably some, uh, you know, activities that show how much they hate each other. And David's sitting there and he's, you know, I, I, as I said last week, I, I think he's sitting there and he's realizing I've not paid attention for a long time. And that happens to a lot of, well, it happens to a lot of people, but I just, I know it still happens to really good leaders really good people, people who started something, people of vision. And and I think sometimes it happens more so to people with vision than it does, uh, visionary leaders, than it does with relational leaders. Not that, not that relational leaders are immune by any means, but I think visionary leaders, they, they're so good at seeing the result they're so good at, at describing where we're going and what it's going to look like that they can they can become complacent in how to get there and they become um, they they naturally become less and less involved in the actual execution of the vision and they become more and more of the verbal visionaries like like they paint the picture and then they want they just kind of want everyone else to to make it happen and the only time they really get involved is when what's happening doesn't really fit what they what they envisioned anyways i i think in a lot of ways david had kind of fallen into that i i think david was both visionary and relational i think he was uh gifted in all in all areas he was he's an amazing leader he honestly he is but I think as he's watching this this civil war of words happening in front of him, he's realizing I, you know, this isn't going to end here. This isn't going to end here. I I've got a lot of work to do. And he's in the presence of God. I think in this in these moments, and he's getting perspective on it all, and he's seeing hope, and he's seeing a path uh, through this. And he knows he can do it. He knows the Lord's anointed him. He knows he's gaining confidence back again, I think, into his identity. And I also think in that identity, he's finding the strength to say, I'm going to I'm going to have to get, you know, back involved with my with my uh, nation. I I've relaxed too long. I've let other things happen. Not that he needs to micromanage things, you know, and become involved in every minute detail of the kingdom. Uh, or or to manipulate things like Saul did, he just he just has to set the standard. He has to show. He has to lead from the front. He has to be a shepherd. And sometimes visionary leaders have trouble uh, reengaging with that because it seems like so much work. You know, when a when a visionary leader looks out and he sees that you know that that they're actually much further from the end result than they than he than they imagine or it's taking way too long for it to get there they just they 
they're more likely, visionary leaders are more likely to walk away. They're, they're more likely to be like, eh, it wasn't that great of a vision, or meh, <laughs> the, t- the timing was wrong, or eh, God wasn't in it. Uh, it's, you know, the grace is lifted, the timing's wrong. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try something else. Because to do the work of reestablishing uh, the the vision of the people to join you becomes becomes overwhelming. And David had to have seen that when he's looking at these elders that are just spewing vile things at one another, and he sees that his own his own personal relatives have no concept of what David is and who David is. I mean, he's been extending mercy and forgiveness for days now as people have have come and pleaded with him. He's shown honor to those who have shown him uh, loyalty. He's he's doing all the right things, and he's looking at the elders, and it says that, right, it says that the, the tribe of Judah was more forceful than the ten tribes of, of Israel. It's It's crazy how intense this is. And David needs God's perspective, or he's going to he's going to become controlling. He's going to become uh, manipulative. He's going to use his his power and his authority to crush people. Remember, he still has at least a thousand soldiers with him. I mean, he left with six hundred, and he he had thousands and thousands of them in that village. And I don't know how many of them are making the actual trip with him to Jerusalem, but you know it's a pretty large contingency because they're, the, the, the military is aware that there's a possible continuation of rebellion. Joab and Abishai, they know. They're, they're, they've been commanders for a long time, and they know that David knows because <laughs> David's had the experience. They're like, we can't just show up, just you. So you know that there are troops ready to crush everybody there. And, and just just a, a glance, a glance from David to Joab. If he just looked at him and gave him a nod, Joab Joab would have just started striking. Like people would have been de- dead people. There would have been a lot of dead people. But David sits and he observes, and I believe he he's a, he is observing from a place where he's in connection with the presence of God and he's seeing the work that needs to be done and he's engaging with the joy of heaven, which gives him the strength for the work that's ahead of him and the work that he knows that needs to be done. And and after, you know, in this crescendo of, of vile verbal attacks on one another, a man named uh, Bikri or Bikri, a Benjamite stands up and he sounds a trumpet. Now his name is Sheba. He's a son of Bikri, uh, who is his father. Who basically, so this is a, this is a mili- uh, as far as we know, this is a military leader and an elder from one of the ten tribes of Israel, Benjamin. <clears throat> he blows this horn and he gets everyone's attention. So in this in this crescendo of arguments and shouting and screaming and probably spitting and kicking of dust, which is a, like a, a sign of of hatred and and a wishing of the other person's death, it's just it just goes on and on. So this guy grabs a trumpet, like he seizes the moment. Sheba, he he seizes the moment, and he says, 
I've got this. This is my, this is, this is it. I served under Saul. I know what this kingdom can be like. I can, I can run this kingdom. We don't need David. David's whole thing of mercy and forgiveness, look at what it's gotten us. David's whole thing of worshiping God 24-7, what has it gotten us? It's gotten a civil war. It's divided his family, a, a royal civil war, and now it's divided the nation. He's like, we need to go back to the way things were. Under Saul, we were all united. Under Saul, everything was working for us. Well, of course it was, because you were in the tribe of Benjamin, and Saul gave all of the prime jobs and all of the, the, you know, the vast majority of of loot and and bounty and whatever you want to call it from uh, the spoils of victory. He took he, the majority of it went to the Benjamites. They, they like, of course, of course, Sheba thinks this is a great plan. So he blows the trumpet, which is that moment in in any you know good argument, right? Somebody gets everyone's attention, and Sheba does that, and he yells out, he he says, "We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel." Now, what is he saying? He basically is is giving Judah the the verbal win. He's like, "Fine, you're right." We don't we don't own Je- we don't own David. He's not a part of our family. He's not part of our blood. So you can have him. We want no share of him. We want no part of him. We don't want him as our king. He's he's literally saying we're going to start our own country. We're going to remove him. We're in civil war now with the other tribe, the southern two tribes of of Israel and with King David. He tells all of all of the elders, which of which he was one, blows the trumpet. He basically says, "Guys, everyone to your tent. We're 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 not taking this anymore. We're going to stand up for our rights. We we have we have you know land. We have we have produce. We have markets. We have trade. We've got our own country if we want to." We are not going. We are not going to submit to David. We are not bringing him back into Jerusalem. We are not going to escort him to the palace. We are not going to establish him. We are going to break our covenant again. Now they had just reestablished their covenant like three weeks earlier. They had just asked forgiveness like three weeks earlier. They were the first ones to to reach back out to David and say, "Listen, we we'd like to bring you back as king." We followed Absalom, bad idea. We we'd like you back. What's the worst that can happen? Remember, that was their, their kind of attitude. Like, how bad could it be? And David's already extended to them mercy and forgiveness and honor. He's he's shown them that he appreciates what they've done. He used them as as motivation for Judah to get in line. And now they're the ones that are turning their back on David again. It says, so all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba. But the men of Judah stayed with the, by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So for miles, they walked with him. They brought him all the way back to Jerusalem. Pretty awesome, really. They stayed, they stayed committed. They were the second ones to the party, but they stayed committed. Now, did they do it the right way? No. 
No, they should have. They shouldn't have attacked Israel. They they caused a bigger rift than what was there. They, or at least they exposed it. I guess is probably the way David would would observe it. He would have said, "All right, so I know this is bad, and now, now they're in rebellion. Now they're going. You know, they've gone back to their tents. They've gone back to their houses. They've gone back to their villages, and they're following Sheba. And Sheba is a military leader, which means he's gonna. It's gonna get ugly. If I want." the 10 tribes of, of Israel to come back to the country and be, you know, submissive to the government and, and fall into alignment with the, with the, um, with the principles of, of heaven, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go back and get them. But through all of this, we don't hear anything from David. There's nothing recorded of David's interactions with, with Sheba, with Israel, with Judah. And his silence, I think, from my perspective, indicates that he's he sees a bigger like he sees the deeper issue or the bigger picture, whichever one you want to whichever one you say. He he sees that what's happening, the rebellion that's happening, is circumstantial of the bitter root that's been there. He sees the rebellion not just this time, but he ties it, I'm sure, into the rebellion of Absalom, and he says the ten tribes of Israel still think that there's that somehow I view them as second second tier citizens because they they followed Saul and when I took over as king in Hebron for seven years they continued to rebel against me and and they don't think I've ever really forgiven them and what's happening here is not as much as it looks like a, an act of violence it's really an act of of pain it's an act of of unforgiveness it's a it's it's an internal issue So I think I think as as Judah escorts David all the way to Jerusalem, David's David's got a lot on his heart. His his perspective is shifting all the time. And as they come over the Mount of Olives and they're working their way down the same path that David had used probably six months earlier to run away. He's working his way down those down those hills. He sees he sees the the valley and then the two mountains. One of of the city of David, right, the fortified city of David, and the other of of Jerusalem, the beautiful city of God. And it's it's you know it wasn't destroyed. It wasn't burned to the ground because of the way he left. It was it was preserved, and the people were there, and the people greeted him. And he, he, he just saw, I think he saw it with such different eyes. It was a place that he loved, like the value of Jerusalem was deep within him. And it didn't have to do with the fact, you know, with, with the military conquering of it. It was the fact that it had, it now represented a city that, that at its core, at its middle state of government, was still a place where the presence of God was honored, where the awareness of God's presence was encouraged 24 hours a day. And I think David walks walks his way in or rides his way in on the shoulders of the various elders of the of the tribe of Judah, and he he's pretty happy to get there, but he knows he's got a lot of work to do. And he returns to the palace, and the first thing he did was he took care of the ten concubines that had been raped. 
Now, he had left them behind, I think, in in good conscience. I think he left them behind because he wanted the palace to run smoothly. He wanted the management staff to to keep everything functional for Absalom so that there was no disruption to the to the flow of government. He saw the rebellion of Absalom as possibly just being the the path in which Absalom chose to to take a role that maybe God had already anointed him for. But in in the you know in Absalom's rebellion and in the advice of a of a bitter angry counselor Absalom raped all 10 women. And so David shows up and it would have been it would have been um counseled to him on a political term to sleep with the concubines and reestablish himself as the protector and lover of all of the contracts and agreements that those 10 concubines represented. But he didn't. He didn't take the political advice. He knew that their hearts had been broken. He knew that he had failed them as a king and as a protector. So he took them, when he got to the palace, he put them in in a house and he put them under guard and he provided for them, but he wouldn't, he didn't sleep with them. And there's, it's noted, right? And and the reason why they note that is because they want you to know he didn't do the political thing, but he did what needed to be done. He basically gave them a place of restoration. They didn't have to work every day in the palace. They didn't have to wonder if they were going to be called on for sexual activity with David. They could take raise their children and take care of their uh, of one another, cook for one another, interact, laugh restore, heal. And he put them under guard 24 hours a day so that in concept, I mean, I know technically somebody could attack the city, da, 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 and they could be, they could be hurt again. But he was basically saying, I failed to protect you, but I'm going to make sure that you're guarded because I, 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 you know, I can't, I can't do it. And I'm I'm humbling myself and putting guards over you, so it's it's an interesting little picture that he that he paints. And I have no idea what it's like to recover from a rape. I don't. Uh, I I know I've spoken with those who have been raped, and I've so I I've heard the emotions, at least some of them that they go through, and it's it it's something that never leaves you. That that part is really true. And in the case of a, of, a, of several women that I've spoken to that had been raped by relatives and they had fathers who who knew about it or found out about it yet continued to expose them to that relative, put them you know in the same space as their relative, not for continued rape, but at least in the cases that I I'm personally involved in. Uh, are, are aware of they didn't continue to get raped by that relative but but the father 
you know, continue to put them in the presence of that rapist. There was there was a there was just this profound sense of a of a lack of protection from the father, and man, that 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 pain just. I don't, I mean, I don't know how you get over it. I don't know if you ever get over it. Because, man, that goes deep. That's, that's, that's intense. So at some level, I think David understood, listen, I, I can't fix this by just saying, hey, let's go back to normal. I think David understood and as, as best he could as a man in that culture I think he understood that what happened here was was my fault. And I don't think David had any clue how to emotionally help out these women. I don't think emotionally David was all that great at being, you know, that sort of fatherly uh, counselor, husband, sounding board to help process uh, these, these concubines through what happened. So in his own way, David, I think, put him put them into housing, made sure that they're provided for for the rest of their lives and put guards around them to basically say, I'm sorry for not protecting you and giving you a place of safety. Not that David did it on purpose. I don't think he did. But looking back, David probably thinks I should have, I should have known. I should have known. And there's a lot of things I'm sure David looked back and, and is thinking, I should have known. I should have known that Abishai wasn't wasn't available to me like he had been. I should have seen that Absalom was vying for power and political gain at the city gates every morning. I should have seen that when he went down to, you know, uh, three years later when he went down to Hebron that, you know, that the party kept getting bigger and elders from all over the country were showing up. Like it's, there's a lot of things that David should have seen that he didn't see because he wasn't paying attention to the details because everything in his life was running pretty well. It's, it's a, this is, this is a sweet little spot in a very ugly story because right after this, it says, then king said, the king said to Amasa, so it's not like hours later, but soon after, probably several days, things have been getting established, the city's getting back to normal, everybody in the city is probably re-engaged with normal really quick, because David's back in charge, there's no, re- in their in their perspective, there's no rebellion, um, you know, from the, from within the royal family, but we do have a rebellion in the northern ten tribes. So the king says to Amasa, remember Amasa is a nephew um, to, to Joab, if I remember correctly. And Joab used to be the commander-in-chief, uh, not commander-in-chief, but the, the commanding general of all the armies. Uh, and David removed him and put Amasa there. Amasa had been the commanding general for Absalom's armies. And that included armies from Judah, men from Judah. So David sends Amasa. He he calls him and he goes, I want you to go to Judah. I want you to summon the men of Judah to come with me within three days, and you be back here as well. So they plan on going after the rebel, Sheba. 
Now, Sheba doesn't have a role as king. He doesn't really have any power, except he has he has a political momentum up north. I'm sure that it's not an all-inclusive, everybody just running into battle again. Remember, they just lost a battle to David under the leadership of Absalom. So all of these men have been running back to their homes and their villages, and now Sheba wants to do another rebellion against David. He's not probably getting the, the full response of the nation like, like Absalom did. Because the elders are thinking the same thing. They're getting pushback from people. Like, what, what are you guys doing? You rebel against David. You follow Absalom. Absalom dies. You ask David to forgive you. He does. And now you rebel against him again. And the elders are trying to justify their behavior because, well, Judah was really mean to us, and they called us bad names. And they think we're second rate because they're blood relatives of David. And and the people are, are pushing back saying, who cares? What army do you have? What city are, are you working out of? What are you doing to us? Like you're throwing us into this state where where we're in constant war which is going to impact all of our our ability, you know, all of our lives, all of our ability to live. But when you're when you're, you know, enraptured by your own pride, you think it doesn't matter. I'll, you know, I'll eat dirt and and drink dust before I, you know, submit to David again. I'd rather be poor and destitute than ever make another dime in some trade deal that David wrote. There's, there's, you know, it's, it, it's ugly. It's ugly. I just, I don't want you to miss that. Rebellion is ugly. It's filled with self-preservation, selfishness, arrogance, uh, uh, cockiness, <laughs> conceit, pride. It's just, uh, and, and, and bitterness. Oh, the bitter roots from previous uh you know regimes under Saul like there all these things are coming to the surface again I should say again it's just it's a terrible thing when you have it worked through forgiveness but he's they're getting pushed back it's not it's not you know all that big and David knows we need to take him out sooner than later because he's not going to it's not going to end well for us if we give him a lot of time He'll eventually put together a pretty good rebellion, pretty good army, and then we'll have to, you know, kill a bunch of our own relatives. I've already done that. I don't want to do it anymore. Listen, Amasa, you got three days. Go down, get the army from Judah, come back, meet me here. We're going after Sheba. So Amasa went down to get them, and Judah wasn't jumping at the chance to go back into battle. Which is interesting because Amasa came from them. He was from the tribe of Judah. He's he's related to the family of David. He should have a place of respect and honor. He's now the commanding general of all the armies under David, and he shows up and starts making a call for for soldiers and he's not getting a whole lot of response the elders are delaying him probably saying you know what yeah that's uh we'll, let, we'll have a meeting we'll get back to you type of thing 
So it took, uh, you know, three days, nobody's showing up. David's not getting any feedback uh, from, you know, from messengers or servants about, you know, how well the, the recruitment's going. David is, part of this is kind of a, a test of Amasa to see what kind of leader he is. And David's getting the, you know, basically he's seeing the evidence that maybe he's not that great of a leader. Maybe people don't respect him as much as, as they, they, that he thought he might. I, I'm not sure. Maybe David's also second guessing his, uh, his insight into, into uh, putting him in charge, but he knows that diplomatically it was the best move because diplomatically it, it, you know, it, it uh, communicated mercy and forgiveness for everyone who served under Amasa, which meant all the elders and all the army men. So there should be some positive response. So the fact that Amasa is not tapping into this tells David that he's, he's in a tight spot. So he goes to Abishai. Now remember Abishai is Joab's brother he doesn't go to Joab. He goes to Abishai and he says, all right, now listen, Sheba will do us more harm, than, more harm than Absalom did. So take your master's men and pursue him or he will find a fortified cities and escape from us. So he he again side sidelines Joab as the leader. He goes to Abishai, who is clearly also a leader and has always been at Joab's side, but 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 publicly, he's letting people know, Joab is not my guy right now. Joab has gone off the rails one too many times. I need peace. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. Joab seems to miss that element sometimes. And I need uh, a commander who understands what I'm trying to say when I say, don't kill somebody. I expect them not to kill somebody. So Abishai, he says, take your master's men. So in this, in basically that same paragraph, he says, so Joab's men <laughs> and the Carathites and the Pelotites and the mighty warriors, they all went out under the command of Abishai. So Joab's men are there. Joab's army. It's, it's kind of weird, I know, for us. Because we don't have a sense of military the way they do, they did and do in the Middle East. In that the military commanders, when you were given command, that was your army. And even though you may also command other, you know, an overall conglomerate of armies, each commander had their own group of, like, that was theirs. And they could kind of do what they wanted with their men uh, within reason. And Joab generally did that, but he had a he had a huge contingency, a big army that was just his, and so did Abishai. And then there were the, the thirty mighty men, which which probably all had their own level of command, where they had soldiers that were under their command that they could call on at any time and say, "Let's go do a raid, let's go do a battle, let's let's take on this person." So Abishai takes Joab's men, he takes his own men, he takes the mighty warriors, and they all went out under him. They marched out of Jerusalem in pursuit of Sheba. So they're headed north. They're getting feedback as to where he's setting up shop. Sheba, of course, gets information, hey, David's coming after me. It's been maybe less than a week at this point. He hasn't had a ton of time, so he's looking for a fortified city to, to at least hold up in 
even if the rest of the 10 tribes of Israel are just going to sit back and observe and see who wins this battle, he at least wants to survive as long as he can. Even if he survives long enough to work out and negotiate some form of influence in the government of David. So he's looking for a place either for the place, of, you know, uh, for the tribe of Benjamin or for all 10 tribes. He's looking for those that have supported him to also have a place of influence. Some of this rebellion is, 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 as all rebellion is, sorry, I'm stuttering again. Some of this rebellion, as always, is about power and authority and put, giving your, your, yourself some, for, some level of what you would consider respect and honor that you deserve. And Sheba evidently somehow, in his victim mindset, believed that he deserved a place of authority and power within the, within the government of David. And David, because David wasn't saying anything in that melee of verbal assaults that were going on at the at the fords of of the Jordan River <laughs> he took that to mean that David was going to side with Judah that David was going to give all the positions of authority to Judah he interpreted David's silence not as a not as a man who was getting perspective but as a man who was planning a uh, you know a, a strategy against him so he decided, fine, then I'll do a strategy against you. I'll make your life rough. I'll take the 10 tribes and go do something else. I'll make you bend to our desire to be a part of your government. Because that was why they went to David first. They went to David because they were like, you know what? We were wrong to rebel against you, and we ask you to forgive us. We want you back as king. They were saying, David, we want what you went after. We we like your vision. We actually, we, we should have never rebelled against you. You're the one who freed us from our enemies. You're the one who, who delivered us from the hands of the Philistines. Remember, that was all part of the messages that they were sending back to David when he was, after, after he had defeated Absalom. And, and I think in their heart of hearts, they saw, in a, uh, at least in Sheba's viewpoint, he saw... David's lack of response as David turning against them. And out of rebellion, he says, I then fine, I'll make it happen. And making things happen is always something that, that bad leadership does. <laughs> man, oh man, it's so easy to be like, well, make it happen. I want this, make it happen. And it's that whole push, push, manipulate, shove, pull, kick, drag, boom, there, the results. The results are what we wanted, boss. Awesome. But what did we do in the meantime? Well, we destroyed people. We alienated people. We marginalized people. We, we promoted people who would agree with us. Like there's so many poor decisions that go into leadership that make something happen. And I think Sheba... Sheba in rebellion was, you know, jumped up on that rock, blew the trumpet and said, ah, I'll make it happen. We will stand up for ourselves. We will make a way for, for our own people to have influence in this government or we will destroy the government. And the, and, and, and part of that is because I don't, uh, you know, he, he knows within a few a few weeks, like he's not going to have time to put together a nationwide army. 
but he's going to have time enough to put something together to maybe force David to come to the table to negotiate something politically. So all these men are marching out of Jerusalem. They're pursuing Sheba. Sheba's starting to put his his little band of brothers together. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably about a thousand men or so. Um, I don't know if they actually give us a number. I'm scanning down the verses. No, uh, I don't see a number. So Abishai is leading everybody. And while they were at this great rock of Gibeon, Amasa shows up. And he shows up with some army guys. Uh, his men were, were there. I don't know how many, but it took him more than three days to get him. I don't know, maybe he was, you know, he's just not a good recruiter. Whether he was prideful and didn't, and decided what I, what I, you know, I don't have enough, three days isn't enough time. I'm going to take the time I need. Or possibly he was getting pushed back. And when the tribe of Judah saw that the men from Jerusalem, the armies of Abishai and Joab were headed out, they decided, well, we'll go ahead and send people along with them because if Joab and Abishai are there, we're probably going to win the battle. They didn't have confidence in Amasa. One way or the other, the confidence in Amasa is what is what was lacking. So he shows, shows up and Joab decides to greet him. Now, I, you know, these verses, I, I'm going to, I'll read them. But just, just remember, this doesn't happen flippantly. This is a pattern in Joab's thought processes. <laughs> he says, it says that Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in, in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Now, that's not a magical phrase. <laughs> he pulls it out. He pulls out the dagger as he's coming closer to Amasa to greet him. So just keep in mind that that it's not like Amasa snuck up on him or you know they were all riding in a in a nice column of several thousand men and Amasa just kind of showed up. They they were they were says that they were um you know at the Great Rock. So they were camping out. They were setting up shop. They were having meetings, military meetings, strategy meetings, sending out messengers uh, to find out where Sheba uh, is is headed where he might be going. They're they're talking about possibilities of different fortified cities that they're aware of and where he might be hiding out, all that kind of stuff. And and word comes that Amasa is showing up with some more men. So Amasa is coming theoretically, positionally. Amasa is the commanding general. He should be involved in all of this conversation. And Joab is basically decided I've got I'm not having nothing to do with this guy. There's no way that I'm following him. I understand he probably knows in his heart, in his military heart, he knows why David did what he did. He knows that David doesn't trust him, and he knows why David doesn't trust him, and he's not sorry for it. He's like, yeah, well, I do. I did the right thing. I did the thing that David wasn't willing to do. I didn't trust David to kill Absalom, and it just would have been continued royal civil war for the rest of my life, and I wasn't gonna put. Up, I wasn't gonna put up with it. And this guy. This guy does not have my respect. He does not have any ounce of honor from me. 
He doesn't deserve the command that David gave him. He didn't deserve the command that Absalom gave him. So, no, I'm not putting up with it. He walks out to greet him. I'm sure everyone's thinking, this is great. Joab's the first one to greet him. And as he's getting closer, it says, uh, you know, the dagger was there in its sheath. And he grabs Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So, uh, by the beard doesn't necessarily mean he grabbed the bottom of it and pulled him in, but but it could. It can also mean that he grabbed him by the back of the neck. So that's with his right hand. So with his left hand, Amasa's unaware, but with his left hand, Joab grabs the dagger. Now, Amasa had no idea this was happening. He was not on his guard against it. He had no indication that Joab was going to kill him. And it said that that uh, Joab plunges it into his belly and spills out his intestines. So much like any great military dude, like he knew how to use this thing, and it wasn't going to be an option of of an injury. He was going to make sure that this guy was dead. So when he stabs him, he stabs him off to the side, probably, let's see, he crosses over. He's got his left hand, so he, he stabs Amasa on the left side and slices him all the way across the belly because it says that uh, his intestines spilled out on the ground without being stabbed again. So it wasn't, it was all one motion. There was no option like stab you. Now Amasa staggers back and now there's a little bit of a struggle. There was no struggle. This was, this was probably one of the first like Judas kisses, like the, the kiss of Judas like the kiss of death. He kisses him, and while he's kissing him on the cheek, he just literally rips his gut wide open. Then Joab and his brother Abishai went after Sheba. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's just that, it's, it, as much as it was a dramatic thing, as far as Abishai, like you, you kind of picture Abishai, who is technically in charge of this group of men that, that are standing around. He sees this all happen, and he thinks, so. Oh, well, all right, that's out of the way. Like, fine, at least we don't have to listen to him anymore. He didn't deserve the, the job anyways. He's never been in battle with us. He doesn't, stand, he doesn't understand our codes. He doesn't understand our military tactics. He's never, you know, he's never uh, protected my life. He's, I don't even know if he, you know, forget it. Yeah, fine. Joab kills him. He's like, oh, all right, good. Yeah, makes my life easier. And one of Joab's men, so one of the one of the guards of Joab, which would have been a, a tight group of trusted uh, warriors, he stands be, beside this man who's lying on the ground, whose guts are are now fully exposed to the to the world. He says, "Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab." Now Amasa, is, it says, is lie, lies there wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And all the men that saw, all the troops that came with him, stopped. So when Joab's men realized, wait, everyone, everyone's stopping at Amasa. Like they're not, they're not moving. They're not going to step over him. Does that make sense? So all this happens while they're all hanging out at the rock. There's like a pathway. Abishai uh, sees what his brother does, and he basically, basically says to his men, "All right, mount up, let's go." Like we know, we know where Sheba is. Uh, we don't have to deal with Amasa and bring him up to speed. 
Let's go. So they all mount up and they're leaving. So some of Joab's men uh, look at this group of men that Amasa brought with them and they say, hey, if you're for Joab, if you're for David, if then follow Joab. Like you, your general's right here, lying here in the middle of the street with his guts hanging out all over the all over the ground. Just ignore him and follow Joab. And the men won't cross. They won't step over the body. And at some level, that's a, to step over the dead body is a sign of dishonor and, dis, and disrespect that they weren't willing to do. They did come under his call. I know it took him a few, a few extra days to get that together, but, but they did come. He was their commander. So they didn't want to disrespect him or dishonor him. And when, they, when Joab's men realize that, they're like, oh, okay, got it. So they drag him from the road. They put him in the field next to the road. They cover him with a garment which probably has some sort of royal symbol on it. And then the men continued down the road. They walked by him there. They, they, maybe they nodded. Maybe they took their helmets off. Maybe they you know, tapped their chest. I don't know. They probably all gave some form of respectful um, goodbye to their commander. But basically, this whole scene is kind of like over. Like, uh, that's it. And once again, Joab goes off the rails when it comes to something that David entrusted in, uh, him to do, which was to follow orders, which was come into alignment under another leader, which some leaders really have trouble with. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you're demoted. <laughs> Sometimes there's a, there's a younger generation that maybe needs, needs and deserves and has earned a place of leadership, or maybe they haven't earned it. And maybe there's an overseer who says, you know what, I'm going to put a younger person in charge here. I'm going to put someone, I'm going to put someone on the board. I'm going to put somebody in a role of leadership that technically could have been seen as a rebel against me, but I think is actually a leader with some new ideas who might have some influence. And I'm going to put them here and we're going to give them a role and see how they do. And Amasa wasn't doing well. And David understood that. So, so being the leader he was, he was like, "All right, I can't, I can't wait for Amasa to come through on this one. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna send out other, you know, other troops under a different commander, and and basically when Amasa gets there, like deal with it, not kill him, but deal with bringing him on board. Like we need to bring him on board. We need to help him out. And the old guard basically said, "Yeah, bad decision." We know what we're doing. We're good at what we do. And they take out the younger leadership. Without, honestly, without even consulting the overall leader. And I've seen this happen in in principle in larger ministries. And what ends up happening with this kind of attitude is the younger, the younger idealism, the newer ideas, the the inner workings of maturity don't happen in the younger generation because in essence they're told you don't have a place here until all of us are dead. You don't have a place here until all of us decide we're too tired and don't care anymore. 
And the younger generation says, you know what? I'll find somewhere else to go or I'll start my own thing. And they move on. Or if they're put in that position, the older generation, the more experienced, the they definitely have a ton of wisdom. Like there's, there's, it's not like Joab didn't know what he was doing. He did, but he looked at that younger generation. He looked at the new leadership and he said, I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to sabotage it. And in this case, he literally killed it. But, but the principle is um, we're, we're taking him out. And they take him out. They take him out because, you know, through gossip, through uh, innuendo, they take him out through um, uh, belittling and disrespect in the public arena. They want to make sure everybody knows this, and I'm still in charge. I'm still in charge. I know that this guy has a has a title. I know that this guy has a theoretical place at the table. But listen, we're not going to invite him to. You know, we're going we're going to start we're going to start new groups. Right? We're going to start executive committees that the uh, that the that he won't be invited to or she won't be allowed to participate in because she's going to be part of the lower the 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 old executive committee. Uh, and now we have a new executive committee. It's it just goes on and on. The principles there. And there's many ministerial leaders that have, in essence, deboweled the next generation of leadership and done so often without even the main leadership having any awareness of it. David had no idea that this had, had happened because it, it was like it happened. It was like, all right, mount up, let's go. Everybody's leaving. Some of Joab's men are like, what's, go, what's, what's holding you guys up? I thought you were loyal to David. And they're like, well, we are, but our commander's right there. And we're not going to dishonor him by stepping over him. And they're like, oh, all right. So they take him off to the side. They cover him up with a nice blanket. And then the men are like, yep, all right. Well, we are part of David. So here we go. And off they go. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to this place called Abel Beth Macha. I don't know if that's how you say it. It just sounded fun to roll that off my tongue. Through the entire region of the Bechrites who gathered together to follow him. Now, why were they called Bechrites? Because that was the name of his father. Sheba was the son of Bechri. So these are Bechrites. So he's literally putting together his own tribe he's, or his own group of people that are following him. These are people that probably along with him think they deserve a place of respect and honor in the government of David, and they're going to force David to negotiate and, and politically give them a place of authority in the northern tribes so that they so David will have to deal with them. And basically they'll become the middleman and become rich through it. Because that's the way it was under Saul. And that's the way it always should be. Blah blah blah. So the Bacharites go to this town called Abel Beth Macha, and they built a. They 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 all gathered in. They closed the gate, and all the troops with Joab. Oh wait, what happened to Abishai? Oh well, you see, everybody knows Abishai isn't actually running the show. Joab's running the show. So Joab comes and they besiege Sheba at Abel Beth Macha, and they built a siege ramp up to the city. And they start battering the the city walls. They're gonna they're gonna just beat the tar out of it until the wall comes down. 
But I'm guessing there's some sort of, of you know, they, this isn't a, a futile idea. This is something that's been done before. There's a weak spot in the wall, a thin spot in the wall uh, that's that the battering ramp, right? Basically, what it means is they build an armored cart that allows them to stand at the city gate or at a thin spot in the wall and and just constantly slam either a battering ram against it or, sw- you know, they'd swing uh, rocks at it over and over again until till they beat down the wall. But other than that, no one's getting out. And the only way out is through them, so they're there. Like, it's it's a neg- real bad situation for the city. And while they were battering the walls to bring it down, they get a message from a wise woman. Now, what that means is she was probably not allowed to have the office of an elder, but she was one of those ancients. She was one of those one of those highly respected ancient people of the city. She, everyone did what she was told. She was like mama of the city. And even though you might be an elder, if mama said no, you didn't, you didn't vote for it because she knew. She sends out a message. She says, tell Joab to come here and I, I want to talk to him. And the crazy thing is he went toward her. He didn't know her because she asked him, are you Joab? Like they didn't know each other, but Joab knew of her. He knew that she was a wise woman, somebody of great counsel. Listen, you don't have to be in a position of power to be known as a wise person. You don't have to be in a role in which you have a title in order to be known as a wise person. And when when the poop hits the fan, wise people are always heard. Because your reputation will be known by everyone, even the enemy. So Joab gets a message from this woman, and he goes to her, and he she says, "Are you Joab?" And he goes, "Yeah, I am." This like this is a face-to-face meeting between the commanding general and a, and an old lady from the city that he's trying to destroy. Now this isn't the first time that somebody within the city, you know, reaches out to the enemy army and 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 negotiates a way for the war to end. I'm sure that this has happened many times before. So it's not like this strange, like, well, why would somebody in the city want to talk to me? It's the fact that it really, that that this old lady asked for Joab and got Joab. She didn't get a messenger. She didn't get a steward. She didn't get, she didn't get one of the lower commanders. She got the general. And she said, listen to what I have to say. He said, all right, I'm listening. I mean, it makes note that he's listening to her. He's going to hear what she has to say. He trusts her words to be true. She's she's known as a woman of integrity. She goes, long ago, they used to say, get your, get your answer at Abel. That was the short name for the city. And that settled it. We are peaceful and faithful in Israel. And you are trying to destroy a city that is a, that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? She she gives a brief history of the of the city, which is why probably her name is known is be, to Joab is because this city was known as a place where you went for wisdom. It was a city that you went for counsel. For whatever reason, people there seem to know how to get through negotiations well. 
it was it's kind of like having a lawyer from you know for like I, I don't know if this is still true but like with a Harvard degree and people are like oh well he's a Harvard lawyer I I know for a long time that held a reputation I don't know where good lawyers come from anymore but it's that kind of reputation like if if somebody from was negotiating and they were from this city Abel Bethmaka it was kind of like well that's that's the best you could do. That's that's they're going to come up with a really good, you know, they'll, they'll put it together for you. So he's listening. She says, don't forget, like we we know what we're doing here. You're you're destroying us when your men come in here. I know you're not going to just go after Sheba's men. The back rights, you're going to go after everybody. You're going to destroy this this place. It's like a mother. It's like a it's like a place that gives birth to new ideas. It's a place of counsel and wisdom. We're not a military zone. Yes, we have a fortified city because we're smart, but but you come on, what's going on? Job says, "Oh man, I do not want to destroy the city. I will, but I don't want it. Far be it for me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. There's a man named Sheba, son of Bakri, from the hill country of Ephraim. He has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over that one man, we'll walk away." The woman said to Joab, we'll throw his head to you from the wall. How awesome is that? <laughs> Man, this is just awesome. You just picture this sweet little lady from the Middle East. You know, she just hunched down a little bit. She's got uh, maybe a cane, a nice burqa. I don't know if her face is totally covered, but she's you know wearing a nice robe. They have a little meeting. She reminds him of the history. She's got that sweet little old lady cadence to the to her voice. Oh, now, Joab, why do you want to come and wipe out our city? You know, we are a city that's known for counsel, for wisdom, for love. It, it used to be said back in my day that if you want wisdom, come to sh- get your answer from Abel. And then it was settled. Like, that is just who we are. Why do you want to kill us? He's like, I don't want to kill you. I'm here for one guy, literally. You give me Sheba, son of Bakri, who's from Ephraim, like, I'll make it real specific for you. There'll be no doubt in your mind. And she says, all right. Like, I kind of picture her smiling, saying, that's it? I'll throw his head from the wall. But this will not be a problem, which tells me Sheba didn't have enough men to fill the city. He had a rebellious group of men, probably less than 500 people. They went into the city because it was fortified and the walls and the doors were shut at night and they figured, well, at least we're safe here. And then Joab and his men show up and they put a battering ram up against the uh, battering ramp up against the walls and they start slamming the doors and the people in the city are like, what just happened? And this wise woman sends out a message, tell Joab I want to see him. And Joab's like, oh, I'll talk to her. She might be able to give me some answers. And she's like, who are you? I'm Joab. Well, listen to me. I will listen to you. I need what, you know, why are you trying to destroy us? I need this guy. That's all I need. You'll have him. And the woman went in to all the people with wise advice. (laughs) Her wise advice. Yeah, what was that? Uh, Cut off Sheba's head, throw it over the wall. Everything will have everything. All these guys will go away. 
And that's what they did. I mean, I kind of picture Sheba like hanging out in some saloon. I, I know, I know it's my American mindset, right? But some sort of a pub. He's there with his, you know, five or six friends who are kind of leading this rebellion. They're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to take Joab? Well, let's see. We could, we, we could sneak up on the, on the walls. Let's, you know, do we have a way of start, you know, starting this thing on fire? Is there a way we could kill him? I mean, they're looking at this huge army. There's just a few of them, really. They, they're vastly outnumbered. We need to get some guys on our side. Yeah, we need to find some rebels here. And in walks this group of men. And all, you know, this, the Sheba and his, his cohorts are like, <gasps> and they look at him. They're like, Sheba? Yes? Come with us. And that's all it took. They cut off his head. They probably, you know, threw him on the ground, told him to kneel, tied his hands behind his back, chopped it off, and they threw it over the wall. Joab sees it. He sounds his trumpet. His men all went home. Like they didn't even march back to Jerusalem. They were all dismissed. Guys, you're dismissed. Everybody can go home now. And they all went home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Problem solved. And Joab took on his role again over Israel's entire army. Benaiah was a king over, was, was commander over basically the palace guard, the Karahites and the, and the Pelotites. And, uh, Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, uh, was the recorder. And it just kind of goes through Zadok and Abathar were the priests. Ira, the gyrite was David's personal priest, uh, which is interesting. You know, there was one, there was two priests for basically the nation. And then David had like his personal chaplain that he would consult with. It was probably like a counselor, a religious counselor. All right, I, I know this went for like an hour. Uh, I don't mind that really, but I, I know, uh, man, it's just, there's a lot here about leadership and about rebellion and about pride. There's a lot here about what it means. Remember, all of this started because David's, David's victory. <laughs> just think <laughs> so many times we get a victory and we think yes you know the enemy's rebellion's been crushed and then your life gets super complicated <laughs> glory just know that sometimes that happens and David's doing all the right things showing love and honor forgiveness respect and yet his life is very complicated because of choices he made because of of pride on, on his part that opened up other people to, to negative impacts from the enemy. And the enemy's been making inroads into the nation of Israel for years now. And I think that's why David wasn't saying anything. He looked at it and he said, I, I know why this is happening. It's not it's not that God is sending forth his judgment. It's that I I just haven't been paying attention. I let the enemy in. I kept thinking, ah, we're good enough. We're doing good enough. Things are going good. Things are going good. So pay attention out there. Pay attention. Be alert. The world needs more alerts. <laughs> That's an old saying. You can have that one. Use it anytime. And I'll see you again next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.